Let's pray together, please. Heavenly Father, what a, a joy it is to have the word of God before us and the promises of eternal life and the promise you made of a Redeemer, a Savior. Help us to truly understand who that Redeemer is, the Lord Jesus Christ, being the eternal Son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Help us to receive that truth from your word this evening with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Verses 1 through 15. It's our scripture reading for this evening. I want you to, to notice especially... Verse 15, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. This is God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And God bless the reading of his holy word. When a heartbroken apostle Paul took his pen and was carried along by the Holy Spirit of God to inscripturate one of the most important, truth-packed, short, choppy letters ever written, known today simply as Galatians. He reminded the people of those churches the beating heart of the gospel message in these stirring and memorable words in Galatians 3, verses 1 and 2. He said to them, under the inspiration of the Spirit, You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This only I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law 
or by the hearing of faith. There are vast multitudes who sit in pews and listen to sermons Sunday after Sunday who think that Jesus was the best example of a Christian ever or that he was the first really good Christian and that we are to follow his example and that that's what it means to be a Christian. Many believe that that's what really this is all about. The vast majority of Presbyterian churches today are part of the liberal PCUSA denomination. They gave away the faith long ago and embraced rank unbelief. If the true Jesus and the true gospel are preached in any of those liberal PCUSA churches these days, it's usually only by accident. I bring this up because perhaps there is no greater question anyone could ever ask than the sermon title this evening, Who is Jesus? If the visible churches of this land do not present a clear, understandable, consistent, biblical answer to that question, then the German atheist and God-hating philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche was right when he asked rhetorically 100 years ago, actually more than 100 years ago, what after all are these churches now if they are not tombs and sepulchers of a dead God? If we don't give a clear answer to the question, who is Jesus, and what does it mean to really know God, then that's all these buildings are. They're just tombs of a God who's not real. Without the right Jesus and the right message concerning Jesus and his saving work to save his people from their sins, the church's existence is no better than the bricks and mortar that enclose those groups of misled and pitiful people. During his earthly ministry, Jesus himself said on many occasions that he himself was, in point of fact, the major focus of all written revelation up to that point in the Old Testament. After his resurrection from the dead, when he met two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says there in Luke 24, 25, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then it says, And beginning with Moses, that means in Genesis, and all the prophets, they went through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, he went through all those books, and the, the, all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. To his Jewish opponents who knew the Old Testament scripture, Jesus said to them in John chapter 5, verse 39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, he said. The Old Testament testifies of Jesus. And he told his Jewish opponents and he told the scribes and the lawyers and the Pharisees, if you really did believe Moses, you would believe in me because Moses wrote about me. If you believed the Bible, you would believe in me. The Bible in its entirety testifies of Christ. One cannot understand the promises that God made Abraham apart from Christ. One cannot understand the entire narrative of Israel's exodus from Egypt apart from Christ. One cannot understand the tabernacle without Jesus. One cannot understand the entire sacrificial system of the Levitical priesthood without seeing that it pointed to Christ. One cannot understand the separation and the ceremonial cleanliness laws apart from recognizing how those laws were intended to show Israel the heinousness of human sin and thus create a longing in them for true cleansing in Christ, the Messiah. When the prophets of God pronounced doom upon Israel, Judah, and their neighbors, 
One cannot understand the repeated promises of a covenant of peace, a new covenant, and a suffering servant who would provide atonement for all the sins of the people and thus bring in an everlasting righteousness and make a true end of sin. You can't understand any of those prophecies apart from the incarnation, the life, ministry, miracles, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Who is Jesus? That's the key question that everyone in the human race faces. You know who pressed that on me real hard when I was young? My father. He said, son, at the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters to you. Who is Jesus? What are you going to do with him? You believe in him or not? You think he's the Lord? You think he's a liar? You think he's a lunatic? Who is Jesus? The great R.C. Sproul said this, we need Christ, the real Christ. A Christ born of empty speculation or created to squeeze into the philosopher's pattern simply won't do. A recycled Christ, a Christ of compromise can redeem no one. A Christ watered down, stripped of power, debased of glory, reduced to a symbol or made impotent by scholarly surgery is not Christ, but antichrist, end quote. Isn't he right? I like that phrase, scholarly surgery. Scholarly surgery will kill you. No one has ever shaken the world more. There is no figure in world history who has had more influence than Jesus of Nazareth. And no one polarizes and divides people more than Jesus of Nazareth. And why does Jesus divide people? Why does he divide people? Because that's what he came to do. Do you realize that? Jesus did not come into this world to make us all one. And make us all hold hands and sing kumbaya around campfires. He came to bear witness to the truth. And he said, all who are of the truth, hear my voice. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, he said. He also said, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. Luke 12, 51. Do you suppose I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. And then he says, I came to set people in their own families against each other. A father against his son, a mother against her daughter, mother-in-law against against son-in-law, and so on and so forth. Jesus came to divide by truth. He separates the wheat from the chaff by his absolute truth claims and his direct opposition to sin, unbelief, and theological error. Jesus is indeed the Prince of Peace. People misuse that phrase. He's the Prince of Peace. He wants us all to get along and all not, not care if people have differences in theology, but that misunderstands what is meant by Prince of Peace. That's talking about peace between sinful men and God that the cross brings and the gospel brings to the world. Jesus' claims regarding absolute truth that he himself is the only way any human being can be saved and that belief alone in him alone is the only way a sinner can avoid dying under the condemnation of God and pass from death in, in their sins into eternal life. Those are the truths that separate people from one another. I remember becoming familiar uh, some time ago uh, with so-called scholarly attempts to get behind the the biblical portrait of Jesus and find the real historical Jesus. Y'all ever heard of the searches for the historical Jesus? There's been various scholarly movements where they've tried to do that. Those attempts by liberals, agnostics, unbelievers to try to get behind the mythology to find out who the real Jesus was. Apart from submission to divine revelation in scripture, we're doomed at the outset of that investigation. Because they were not in submission to scripture, they were not going to find who the true Jesus was. 
And many critics of the so-called quests for the historical Jesus, like Christians and Christian theologians and ministers, pointed out that by the time these liberals and agnostics and unbelievers, by the time they were done trying to get behind the Bible to see the real Jesus, guess what Jesus turned out to be? Exactly like them. Liberals found that, lo and behold, guess what Jesus was? A liberal. German higher critics, the Jesus that they found was a German higher critic. 19th century liberals found a liberal Jesus. Existentialist philosophers found their existential Jesus. Marxists and political revolutionaries found a Marxist Jesus. And so on and so forth. If you try to understand the question, who is Jesus, apart from submission to the divine revelation, you will make a Jesus that looks just like you in the mirror. Indeed, there are countless false Jesuses out there. Even while the apostles of Christ were still alive and preaching, they had to warn people about other Jesuses, other gospels, other spirits mimicking Christianity. Any quest for Jesus that discards the Old and New Testament is quite literally a waste of time. The Bible is the only source of true information about Jesus. Reject the Bible, you'll never find the real Jesus. The simple fact is, the unbeliever will never find Jesus as he really is. You know why he will never find Jesus as he really is? Because the unbeliever doesn't want to find Jesus. This is the God the unbeliever is running from, hiding from. Jesus as he really is. Apart from the sovereign work of God and regeneration through the proclamation of the true Jesus and his true gospel, the unbeliever is not looking for and has no interest in the real Jesus. The unbeliever doesn't want light because he loves darkness. Jesus said that, John 3, 19. This is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. And so these quests for the historical Jesus, apart from divine revelation and scripture, they're nothing more than men looking for excuses to continue unrepentant in their lusts and sins. The only quest associated with Jesus is the quest he makes to find his people and save them. God mercifully sends evangelists and preachers and parents that care about their children into the world. And God works through them in his search for his lost people to save them from their sins. As the great hymn that we often sing together, the church's one foundation has a wonderful stanza. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Jesus seeks out and saves his people. A Jesus that can be found by quests of unbelievers will never be the true Jesus anyway. What we need to know is that Jesus Christ is so hidden in God the Father that he cannot be known unless he is supernaturally revealed by the Father to his elect people. Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus said it to the world. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So who's going to know God truly? The one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Sinners don't seek and find Christ. Christ seeks and finds them. Quests for Jesus motivated by unbelief, they're anything but neutral, despite all their protestations to the contrary. When you hear people saying, we just follow the facts, 
You need to know, no, you're just looking for an excuse to stay a sinner. You're looking for an excuse to go right on with your lusts and whatever your pet little things are that you're into. That's all that is. Dr. Sproul said this, quote, unbelief is judged by Jesus, not as an intellectual error, but a hostile act of prejudice against God himself. Isn't that a great sentence? He's exactly right. Unbelief is judged by Jesus not to be an intellectual error. It's not a mistake. It is a hostile act against God himself. Sproul says, this sort of unbelief is destructive to the church and to the people of God. End quote. The so-called scholarly quest for the historical Jesus have yielded nothing helpful to the true portrait of who Jesus actually was. This pick and choose and cut and paste method approach to the New Testament due to scholarly concerns in order to remove legend and myth from fact. Listen, folks, it's merely a smokescreen for people to create Jesus in their own image. The fact of the matter is simple. Either we believe what the people of God have always received and regarded as divine revelation in scripture, or we give up entirely the notion that knowing anything about Jesus is possible. This is a church. I am a minister of the gospel. I know exactly why people make Jesus in their own image. I know why people pick a few red words here and there, discard some there. They write Paul off as a misogynistic bigot. They do it because they're hostile to the seed of the woman. You see that in Genesis 3.15? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You know what that Hebrew word, eva, translated as enmity? It means uh, a hatred with a desire to kill. Really? There's that much hostility between believers and unbelievers? Yeah. Oh, yes. Definitely. People make Jesus in their own image because those red letters often don't fit what they like. They do it because if Jesus doesn't condone the sin they love, well, so much the worse for the true Jesus. They do it because if the Bible's true, then they're in a great deal of trouble. And they need to stop doing and living in the sins that they love and serve. Jesus told the whole world, I'm light. Light has come into the world, but men prefer and love darkness. The modern quest for the historical Jesus, they've not been quests for the historical Jesus. The the historical Jesus is the one who's given to us in scripture. That's the only source of information we have about him. The modern quest for the historical Jesus are campaigns for ungodliness disguised as neutral and scholarly concerns for the truth. How can they be interested in truth when at the outset of their quests, they already ruled out the beating heart of the biblical message? R.C. Sproul said this, quote, To redefine Christianity requires one to neutralize the authority of the Bible and relativize the authority of the creeds. The struggle of the church for the past 150 years has been precisely at these two points. It is not by accident that the eye of the storm of controversy within the seminaries and the church in our day has focused on issues concerning the Bible and the creeds. Why? Not simply because of words on paper, but because of Christ. One must banish the Christ of the Bible and the Christ of the creeds in order to redefine Christianity. And every generation has to face this and deal with it. People trying to redefine the Christian faith. Peter was very blunt, straightforward as always in his preaching. That great verse in Acts 4.12, when he was preaching, he said to that crowd, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's a captivating verse of scripture. It's so 
narrow in what it's saying. And so many people that profess to know Christ today in the Christian church really seem to have forgotten just how narrow the gospel really is. There's only one way that people can be saved, and you have to come to God on his terms. That is through Christ alone. Here we have the earliest preacher of the gospel on record in the book of Acts, Peter. He says, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Consider with me the importance of that statement. There is no other name. What's he talking about? Jesus, the name of Jesus. And so the question, who is he, is of the utmost importance. The biblical portrait of him cannot be captured in just one sermon, but the basics can. And one one considers just a handful of the, the names assigned to Jesus in the Bible. We must dismiss immediately the idea that he was merely a man. He is also God in the fullest sense of that word. The same substance as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Even the long list of titles he's known by in scripture communicates he's far more than merely a carpenter from Nazareth. He's called Christ, Lord, Rabbi, Son of Man, Son of God, Son of David, Lion of Judah, the Rose of Sharon, the Bright and Morning Star, the Alpha and Omega, the Lagos, the Advocate, the Prince of Peace, the Only Begotten of the Father, the Lamb without blemish, and on we could go. This is the man who turned the whole world upside down and continues to do so today. This is the one who made cowards into lions. This is the one who broke the prideful, arrogant, angry, murderous Saul of Tarsus and made him perhaps the most self-sacrificial, humble, intellectual, passionate preacher of the one true gospel who ever walked this earth. Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. Most people today don't think of Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth or as Jesus, the son of Joseph. In modern America, people usually have a a middle name, but we consider their first and last names to be sufficient to identify them. Many many people think that Christ is just his last name. Like I'm Patrick Hines, he's Jesus Christ. That's his first and last name, but that's actually not what Christ means. Christ is a title. The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed. And it corresponds to the Hebrew Old Testament term Mashiach, or anointed one. When Jesus is called Christ, he's being called Messiah. If we were to translate the name and the title directly into English, we could call him Jesus Messiah. With this title, we're making a confession of faith that Jesus is the long-awaited anointed one of Israel, the Savior who would redeem his people. Believing Jews and the Gentiles who were part of the Old Testament church before the arrival of Jesus Christ had been taught by the Old Testament scriptures that there was a promised redeemer who was going to undo the curse of God against sin and bring them a perfect atonement for their sins, bring them a perfect righteousness which would justify them before God. That's what the Old Testament prophesied. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. What does that make you think of? To finish sin, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. What's that talking about? That's about the cross. That was what the Old Testament taught them to be looking for. Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered among the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And on we could go reading those passages. The Old Testament believers understood that that was about the coming of Christ. One day the seed of the woman would come. He would do all these things. He would make reconciliation for iniquity. He would bring in an everlasting righteousness. He would justify us by bearing our iniquities. You see how clear that is? The gospel's right there in the Old Testament. The whole sacrificial system, it was, it was a giant object lesson in the need that the people had for a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. When they brought that animal and the priests laid their hands on its head, it says in Leviticus 1-7, through and your guilt shall be transferred to that animal. There was a transference of guilt to the animal, and yet the fact that they had to offer them over and over and over again, that showed them this didn't actually bring about real forgiveness. It was anticipation of the one sacrifice that the Messiah would make. The Old Testament taught the gospel to Abraham, taught the gospel to Isaac, to Jacob, to Israel, David, Daniel, the prophets. They understood that the seed of the woman was going to come and he was going to justify them by faith alone, not by their works or anything that they did. It's a glorious thing to see all the prophecies, all the way the whole fabric of the Old Testament is woven together to make this tapestry, the scarlet tapestry of redemption. I've been working through my Kindle um, edition of Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Anyone here ever read that or used that as a resource? It's a really good resource. There's a, a section in it where he goes through about 300 prophecies from the Old Testament and looking at the Old Testament, looking at the fulfillment in the new, just over and over and over again, going back and forth. And it's a very, very encouraging thing. It's an amazing exercise to go through. The entire Old Testament scripture is about and points to the coming of Jesus Christ, the cross work of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, we only get two chapters of divine revelation about creation week and God's covenant of works with Adam in the garden of Eden before we get to the fall. And then we get the promise the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent one day. He's going to be coming. The rest of human history and biblical history is about the coming of the Messiah. And you know who knew that that Messiah was coming? Satan did. Satan knew he was coming. And that's why there's rivers of innocent blood all around that genealogical line, all the way down. When you see the people of Israel, their children being thrown into the Nile River, you may think, well, that's just Pharaoh being mean and being, being scared. That's the work of Satan, trying to snuff out that line. When Jesus is born, what does Herod do? He has all the, the children, two years old and under, and a whole region murdered. What is that? That's the devil trying to stop this from happening. The whole Testament is about the coming of Jesus and it's Satan's attempt to try to stop it because God told him in the Garden of Eden, when he comes, he's going to destroy you. You see this? You can't understand the Bible without Christ as the, the centerpiece of everything. Absolutely everything. God, by a special act of providence, in order to execute his plan for his own self-glorification, he enters into a covenant of works of obedience with Adam and all of Adam's descendants who were represented by him, binding Adam to perfect personal and perpetual obedience, as our confession says. And the command was simple in Genesis 2, 16. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. And we all know, we just read what happened. The, the devil interacts with 
Eve, but apparently Adam was doing what? Being the strong, silent type? Just standing there doing nothing? Here, eat this. Okay, sure. He doesn't say anything. He should have smashed the serpent's head into the ground and threw his dead carcass out of the garden. But he doesn't. He just stands there and he rebels. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he violated that covenant. And that's why all of us die. And that's why all of us have all the misery and the hardships and the diseases and everything else and all the troubles that we have is because of that. And what does that have to do with who is Jesus? The scripture identifies the first Adam as the one who disobeyed and brought sin and death. And then there's the last Adam. There's the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. He enters into that same covenant of works. He does it right. He succeeds. Romans 5.12, Therefore, as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, because when Adam sinned, we sinned. When Adam ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So did I. We ate from that fruit. Romans 5.17, If by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So when he comes into the world, he enters into that broken covenant and achieves all of its righteous requirements perfectly and he pays its penalty and conquers it by rising from the dead. That's who he is. The first Adam, the first man ever created, he was special and that he was the singular representative of the entire human race that would ever be conceived and born into the world. He represented the entire human race. And the way scripture defines this for us um, it, that all of us today right now are represented by one of two people. Everyone in this room, you are either under the federal headship of Adam or Christ. Everyone, everyone in this room, you are either under Adam or Christ, one of the two. Who's your federal representative before God? I hope it's Jesus. I hope you're trusting only in him. But if, you, if you're trusting that you're good enough to go to heaven, you're under the headship of Adam. I promise you that. When Adam fell and God drove him and Eve out of paradise to live in the sin-cursed world full of disease and pain and sadness and thorns and thistles and lack of communion with God and ultimately physical and eternal death, we must remember God made that promise. He made that promise to them. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. He says, that hatred with the desire to kill is going to be there for the rest of human history between those that know me and those that don't. And of course, what happens in the very next chapter of Genesis? What happens in Genesis 4? Cain kills his brother, murders him. You see that desire to kill there. Execution and the death penalty, they were in order for Adam and Eve both. I mean, think about it. That clod of mud from the ground who defied the all-glorious, holy, good God, whose paradise he enjoyed and lived in. That image of God made from dust shook his bold and defiant fist in the face of God and directly, openly, freely, willfully disobeyed him, even while he knew the penalty for it. And that's why we all suffer and groan and experience all the horrors of, of life. Because we're not only guilty for what Adam did, we also inherited from him a corrupt, fallen nature that resists and hates and is constantly rebelling against God and his law, which is in the soul of every person. You notice that? All of us go astray from the womb, it says in the Psalms. 
Little kids don't have to be taught how to hit people, how to lie, how to manipulate. It's something they're born with, just like we were, that fallen nature. You know, Jonathan Edwards in his treatise on original sin actually made the argument, the Bible teaches original sin. <laughs> but then he says, but even if it didn't, we'd still have to believe in it. Because you don't occasionally come across someone who's really good. Everybody goes astray. Everybody sins. You want to know the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Please hear me. What the world needs more than anything is not a better example to follow. We don't need help. We don't need good advice. We don't need more laws to obey. Nor do we need someone who gets us. Some of you understand what I'm talking about. What the world needs is a savior, a redeemer, someone to stand in our place and do all of it for us. Humanity needs a new representative who will start out righteous like the first Adam did, but not fall this time. We need a new representative who will do righteously what the first Adam failed to do. This is what this mysterious seed of the woman would do. Christianity at its core is not a religion on how to be better or how to be good enough to get to heaven. The core of Christianity and its good news is the message of a savior who does entirely and perfectly as a new representative and substitute what the human race is entirely and perfectly incapable of doing for itself. What so many believe Christianity to be and what so many believe the Bible to be about is really, ironically, the opposite of the truth. Christians do not believe that they're religious and therefore more worthy of entering heaven than those who are not. And yet have you noticed that your non-believing coworkers think that that's what you think? Christians don't believe that because they attend church, take the Lord's Supper, they've been baptized, they read the Bible, they talk about spiritual things, therefore we're a few notches higher on the goodness scale. And yet the non-Christians that you know, I promise you, that's what they think you believe. A true Christian, on the contrary, is the person who recognizes that, as a matter of fact, they're so evil, so thoroughly wicked, so entirely unworthy of going to heaven that they abandon all hope and trust in themselves and trust entirely and completely in the doing and dying and the shed blood and righteousness of someone outside of them, namely Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. What most of the world and sadly nearly all of the liberal versions of pseudo-Christianity miss entirely is God's answer to the question, who is Jesus? The biblical portrait of his identity is all important to the salvation of souls. When Peter said, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved in Jesus Christ, he said this because Jesus Christ alone did what every person needs doesn't have and could not possibly ever earn by trying hard enough. Jesus' name is the only name by which men can be saved because of who he is and what he did. It is the person and work of Christ that is all important. It's what Jesus did outside of us in real history 2,000 years ago that saves. People speak so often of doing good works to get themselves into heaven in some way trying to put their works into the equation. I've heard so many people in the workplace that through the years when I was a computer programmer for 11 years, so many people would do things and they'd make a large donation 
Or they would be really forgiving towards someone that wronged them or something like that. I've heard people say this phrase frequently. If that doesn't get me into heaven, I don't know what will. Such people have far too low a view of God in his holiness. In fact, a fatally low view of God and his holiness. Such people likewise have far too, too high a view of what they do. In fact, it's a fatally high view of what they do. People must learn that the noblest and most self-sacrificial and most righteous deeds they have ever, ever done are soiled with enough sin and selfishness and wickedness to be in themselves the very basis upon which they would be condemned on the day of judgment and go to hell. Westminster Confession of Faith, the chapter of good works, chapter 16, is one of the most important chapters in the confession. Point number five of that chapter says this, we cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come. And the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. End quote. Dear ones, when we speak of the holiness of God, we speak of that which would destroy anyone were they to experience it in its fullness. And that's why when Benny Hinn says that God came into his bedroom in all of his glory, to share some new insights with him, I want to say, Benny, you would not have survived it if he did. You don't want God to come in all of his glory into this room. It would kill us all. When the godly and righteous prophet of the Old Testament, Isaiah, when Isaiah saw a vision, I mean, it wasn't really even the direct presence of God in any way. It was a vision of Jesus on his throne, surrounded by the fiery angels and the seraphim who had six wings each with two, they covered their faces with two, they covered their feet with two, they were flying and calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah, the godly, the righteous man was stricken with terror and he pronounced the very curse of God upon himself. Normally the prophets would pronounce the curse of God upon the disobedient children of Israel and Judah. But in this very rare case, being confronted with God's holiness and thus also with his own sin, Isaiah the prophet pronounces the curse of God on himself. And says in Isaiah 6.5, Woe is me, I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the almighty God, which all of the agnostic and skeptical and unbelieving quests for the historical Jesus are doing everything they possibly can to avoid facing. This is the God they are absolutely determined not to find. This is the Jesus they're not looking for. God is not only frightening, he's terrifying. When the fall happened, all mankind by that fall, it says in our catechism, based on scores of passages, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and thus made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. We lost communion or fellowship with God because God can't have fellowship and communion with unredeemed, judicially condemned, sinful people. Were God to draw near to us, in all of his ineffable glory and holiness, we would not survive it. And there's a, a strange, irreverent familiarity that many churches have about 
who God is that's not healthy. When the Holy Spirit convicts a person of their sins such that they learn to see themselves for what they truly are, meaning they see themselves the way God sees them. Wretched, vile, damnable, selfish, hell-deserving, rebellious, lazy, foolish, ignorant, reckless with our souls, then and only then will they have any context at all to understand the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Then and only then will they have any context to understand how vast and great the love of God really is. Only divinely convinced sinners who identify themselves as sinners in need of grace know how to answer that question, who is Jesus? So let's answer it. Jesus is the God-man, fully God and fully man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Why must he be fully man? Because I'm fully man. And if he's going to save me, he's got to be exactly what I am in every way except sin. Why must he be fully God? Listen, please. If you believe in a Jesus who is something less than God, then you have a Jesus that cannot save you. That's what the great Athanasius saw looking at scripture way back, you know, 1,700 years ago. If we have a Jesus who is not fully God, we have a Jesus that can't save us. He must be fully Divine, the second person of the Holy Trinity, because only God can withstand and satisfy for his own terrible righteous wrath and judgment against the sins of humanity. This is the side of God so many despise and want nothing to do with. There is no access to God without first coming to terms with the truth about who we are. God causes us to look at ourselves through his holy eyes. And when that happens, it's a terrifying experience. God is terrifying and he's awful in his judgments. Do you want a perfect illustration of just how terrifying, how awful God's righteous anger, hatred, and wrath against sin is? You want an illustration of it? The cross. How serious is human sin? That was what it took for it to be paid for. The cross that Christ bore, was nailed to, and died upon shows us that cost. I remember sharing the gospel with a bunch of little kids at a good news club in Ohio. And I could tell that first day there were 15 little kids there. And I could tell they didn't know what I meant. They didn't know what crucified meant. I said, raise your hands if you do not know what I mean by crucified. And two-thirds of the hands went up. And so I explained to them. I said, yeah, they would actually spread your arms out on wood, and they'd put a spike through your wrist between the bones here. And to see these little kids like, what? Yeah, they put your feet on top of one another and drive a spike through both of them. And then they would put you up in the air and let you hang there like that until you died. And the look of terror on their face. And I said, kids, that's what the cost was if we're going to be forgiven by God. That shows how loving God is. He doesn't want that to happen to you. He doesn't want you to to get the wrath that he has against your sin. And then to tell them, and by the way, one act of disobedience to your parents is enough to send you to hell forever. To see the, really? Yes. I remember one little girl, I remember her, her name was Dana. Her name was Dana. And I'd been there, been there every Thursday for the, most of the school year. And she was always listening, always listening. And the very last day that we were there that year, she raised her hand. Mr. Hines, are you, so are you saying people actually do go to hell? I said, yeah, they do. If they die, and they haven't repented, if they don't believe Jesus died for their sins, they pay for their sins themselves. And it's righteous, and it's right for God to do that. 
said, oh. And then the next year when we came back, she'd gotten saved. <laughs> and she was reading her Bible that we gave her. I gave her a Bible and put little sticky tabs in it. And I got a letter from her mom. And her mom said, Dana reads the Bible to our whole family every day now. And wants all of us to believe in Jesus. <laughs> I was like, that's praise the Lord. But I, I'll never forget that. She was in first grade. Are you saying people actually go to hell? I said, yeah, they do. I said, that's why we're here. I don't want any of you guys to go there. So please, please believe in Jesus, what we're talking to you about here. These aren't just interesting stories. This is what happened in real history. You need him just as much as I do. You need to trust in him. There is no access to God without coming to know the Lord Jesus as your savior. Who is Jesus? Jesus Christ is God the Son who added to himself in the virgin birth a full human nature exactly like ours except sin. Who is Jesus? He's the Savior of repentant sinners. Jesus is the only way anyone can be right with God. And so I'll say to you what I said to those kids over and over and over again. You need to abandon all trust and confidence in your works, in yourself, anything about you, anything that you've done, and you need to rely only on the finished work of Christ. And when a person does that, that's where true assurance can come from. I talk to so many people and they just struggle with assurance. They struggle with assurance because they really do think in some way it still depends on them and what they do. And I point out again and again, yeah, if you're thinking that way, I understand why you have no assurance. But when you learn it is solely and only what he has done, all you do is receive it. All you do is rest upon it and know that it's a finished work, that's where true assurance can come from. So I want to encourage you all to live your life knowing you're a sinner and all you have to stand before God is the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God and man, two distinct natures, one person forever. The new federal head of his elect people. And when those people are effectually called and united to him, they are justified, they are adopted and they are given eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son into the world. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to remember him and to enjoy this time of communion in his body and blood here in the sign of bread and wine. And we pray that you would bless us and give us a stronger assurance so that we can live and die in the joy of that comfort, knowing our sins are forgiven. We are accepted in your sight and that we have eternal life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.